listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Midlacero, and this is the Sunday, June 25th, 2021 edition of Labor Express. This is a post-production note and an apology to our listeners. Labor Express Radio was forced into a month-long hiatus, even longer for the podcast. I apologize to all our listeners for this unscheduled and unexpected summer break. I also want to update some of what you will hear in the following program. When this program originally was recorded and aired on WLPN, the National Nurses United strike was indeed a one-day strike. The SEIU strike, also discussed in the program, which started the next day, turned out to be a much more than a one-day strike. It ended up being an 18-day strike. In both cases, the strikes accomplished their goals. First came victory for the NNU and National Nurses United nurses on uh, July 3rd. They won significant improvements in their contract. Number one on their goals was to end the chronic understaffing at Cook County. The new contract adds 300 registered nurse positions. It also includes increased numbers of patient care support nurses in critical units and a wage increase that will range from 12% to 31% over the life of the contract. SEIU won a new contract on July 13th. Their contract, which covers a range of Cook County employees, included across-the-board raises, bonuses, and pay equity across multiple areas of the county, hazard pay for working during the pandemic, an improved health care package, and prioritizing seniority in hiring and promotions. You can find out more about these victories at links up at laborexpress.org. Here's the rest of the original program. There were several interesting, inspiring, concerning, and frustrating events and developments in regards to Chicago's public sector workers the past couple weeks. And on tonight's program, I'll try to bring you quick report backs on as many of these as I can. First up, we'll hear from the Chicago Teachers Union about their opposition to more than 440 layoffs of CPS employees at the end of the school year. Then we'll hear from Cook County Hospital nurses on the picket lines during their one-day strike. In the second half of the program, we'll hear from a group of Chicago transit workers who are fed up with working for a year and a half without a contract and a union leadership that seems unwilling to take the militant steps necessary to win a good contract. And lastly, we'll hear from SEIU as they celebrated Juneteenth 2021, the first year this important celebration of freedom struggles of people of color in our nation's history was recognized by the federal government. But first, we have an international news update from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. In this episode of Solidarity News, African Director of Education International Dennis Signolo talks about the alarming rise in child labor globally after decades of slow decline. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. I'm Simri Ainsborough. For the first time in 20 years, progress to end child labor in the world has stalled. In the past four years, the number of children in child labor has risen to 160 million worldwide. In that time, 8.4 million children have been added to the number of child laborers. Even worse, the number of children in hazardous work has risen to 79 million. Hazardous work is defined as work that is likely to harm the health and safety of a child. On June 12th, a week of action to eliminate child labor was started with the participation of unions all over the world. One of those labor organizations is Education International, the global union for teachers and other educators. Here is Dennis Signalo, the director of EI's African region. He mentions the UN's Sustainable Development Goal, the SDG, for eliminating child labor. Education International is the global federation of education unions, representing more than 32.5 million teachers and education support personnel in 178 countries. 
Since its inception 28 years ago, EI has made the eradication of child labour one of its primary objectives. We currently have ongoing programmes in 13 countries, mostly in Africa. There is consensus that the most effective way to eradicate child labour is to ensure access to equitable, inclusive, quality education for all. Quality education can break the generational cycles of poverty. We know that a child who works today instead of being in school is likely to be tomorrow's unemployed adult. However, putting children in school is not enough. Putting children in overcrowded classrooms, in schools without toilets or water, or not enough trained teachers can result in school dropouts. What all children need is a quality education ensured by three key pillars. Number one, qualified teachers with decent salaries and working conditions. Number two, quality tools and resources. Number three, safe, healthy and supportive quality learning environments. To achieve this, governments should meet the internationally agreed benchmark of allocating at least 20% of the national budget or at least 6% of GDP to education. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated long-standing education challenges. Research evidence shows that very little learning has occurred during school closures, mainly because of the digital divide. Radio, TV and other initiatives have not reached the most marginalised children. In particular, rural children, those with disabilities, migrants and refugees. Girls have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic and there is a real risk that many may not return to school due to pregnancy, early marriage or child labour. The prospect of achieving SDG 4 by 2030 is fast diminishing. EI has worked with its member organisations and partners to eradicate child labour. EI projects focus on making the school environment conducive to attract children to school and keep them there. Teacher unions engage education authorities, school leaders and teachers, parents and the wider community in projects with a holistic approach that covers issues around quality teaching, student-centred approaches, safe schools, professional ethics, inclusive education, gender equality and teacher status and working conditions. The millions of children still subjected to child labour instead of being in school are crying for help. We have the responsibility to make their lives better through inclusive quality education for all. You can find more information about Education International's efforts to end child labour at ei-ie.org. Thank you to Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. 
At schools across the city last week, but especially it seems that schools in Chicago's already poorly resourced low-income black and brown communities, pink slips were handed out to some 443 teachers and staff as the difficult pandemic-disrupted 2021 school year came to an end. CPS is saying this happens at the end of every year as schools readjust to plans for the next coming school year. But C2 members say this needs to stop, especially at a time like this when the schools are preparing for a difficult transition back to full-time in-class instruction. In a virtual press conference, Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey addressed the situation. These layoffs need to be reversed. Um, The fact that we go through this process every year um, doesn't excuse the fact that it's wrong. It doesn't doesn't make it right. Teachers are mistreated routinely. Um, uh, They're mistreated by this process every year, and we're supposed to accept that because we're used to it. Um, that's not right. Uh, we should talk about equity because and ask the question, what happens to a teacher, a veteran educator, never had a bad job uh, evaluation in her life, in her career, um, who teaches at a school that's in a poor neighborhood? And because the school is in a poor neighborhood, um, it experiences a lot of programmatic instability, which means that these annual layoffs hit those teachers who choose to work in those schools especially hard. By the way, that's largely uh, women of color. That, that, that's, that's who the, the teaching population is at, at these schools that we're talking about. And then what happens is that that gives administrators ample opportunity to target people they don't like, target people who have talked about educational justice and, and other issues that come up in the school. Um, and it has the effect of having the precise opposite of equity. And so while school administration and leadership go around talking about equity um, you know, in public and at their board meetings, um, they're actually uh, following a policy which has the precisely opposite effect. This is an inequitable policy. It, it's wrong. It needs to be reversed. These layoffs need to be reversed. Several laid-off CPS employees with years invested in the schools spoke during their virtual press conference, including Cheryl Dudek, who teaches human anatomy and physiology at King College Prep. It is disturbing to hear what she has to say about cutbacks in class offerings even in a college prep school. According to Dudek, it appears cost-cutting, getting rid of experienced, higher-paid teachers and replacing them with lower-paid new teachers may be one of the objectives. I am a nationally board-certified teacher and have been teaching in CPS for 20 years. 19 of those years, I have been at King College Prep High School. Uh, Previous to this, I worked in healthcare for 15 years. I'm a certified athletic trainer and a clinical exercise physiologist. On Friday, I was called down to the principal's office and read a script regarding my position elimination due to budget constraints. When I tried to engage in a conversation, I was given the hand and told that there could be no conversation. I was not thanked. Um, Nothing else was said to me. I was told I needed to follow the directions in the letter from human resources. The conversation that I wanted to have with the principal was regarding my endorsements. My national board certification endorses me to teach all science courses. I'm also endorsed to teach special education. Recently, a a physics teacher with no classroom experience has been hired, which is a board policy of making decisions based on saving money rather than student needs. There's currently a posting for a second physics teacher. The school also has multiple postings for special education teachers. I've taught biology, environmental science, and human anatomy and physiology. The students who sign up for my human anatomy and physiology class are mostly interested in going into healthcare. 
I also sponsor the Eco Club um, in which I teach our students about um, the Chicago environment and I promote environmental justice and service learning. Biology is a required class and human anatomy and physiology is an essential elective. It is my understanding that chemistry and physics are going to be the only two science classes offered at King College Prep next year. There are no science electives or advanced placement science classes for students to take next year. King College Prep High School and the board has decided that these classes are non-essential. I believe that the students at King College Prep High School will only be able to take science electives online or through dual enrollment next year. Human anatomy and physiology will no longer be available for physical education credit, nor will dance as the dance teacher was let go. The last physical education teacher um, was that who was left at King College Prep has also been let go. I believe now that the PE requirement can only be fulfilled by JROTC and marching band right now. The federal government has given $2 billion to CPS. The students of King College Prep need to return next year to familiar faces. The number of electives need to be increased. Our students need support and avenues like extracurricular activities to welcome them back in the building. Instead, the board is offering our students less options, less familiar faces, less support, and a message that, this, that their only path is through the military program they did not choose. This is not reco recovery. This is more of the same inequity we had pre-pandemic that negatively impacts Black students. The time is now to give our students what they need. The board and the new CEO need to reverse all the layoffs and increase the support each and every school needs to recover from the pandemic. Kimberly Watson, an instructional assistant at Nancy B. Jefferson School with 26 years of experience, is typical of many of those laid off. The Jefferson School serves youth in a juvenile detention facility. Most of the layoffs are happening in schools that serve youth with the greatest needs. Watson points out that many of the layoffs seem to target active union members like herself. Good morning, everyone. I'm an instructional assistant with 26 plus years of experience. Um, I hold a degree, actually two degrees. I was also called in to the principal's office laid off myself and another instructional assistant. Um, we were the only two instructional assistants at the school. I am also a paraprofessional delegate and I sit on the PPC at my school. Our school is located inside the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center. So you, you work very hard just to maintain, to be able to go there every day and give those students your all and your best because they come from such disadvantages and they come to us, they're behind. So me and the other paraprofessional, we give, give credit recovery so they're able to catch up and graduate. We have really helped a lot of students obtain their diplomas there. And him letting us go will impact those students. It would impact the graduation rate because of course seekers are not able to do a lot of the services we provide. I have sat on numerous committees. Um, I have done, I have worked above and beyond my job title in order to just support the school as a whole and to be laid off knowing that the board has received $2 billion is really a blow because you, you, you choose your career thinking that you will get loyalty in return for your service, excellent service. Um, 
And I hope CPS reversed this decision to survive a pandemic, survive homeschooling, and then return to work and sit across from people that you have serviced and, and made sure that their job was easy because you was a team player in helping and to be looked at with a blank stare and given a piece of paper. I have been at the school 20 years with CPS 26 years. So I hope CPS steps up. They do the right thing. They reinstate these positions. That was just a selection of those who spoke at the press conference, and I had to edit their comments for time. You can see the full unedited conference and a link up at the laborexpress.org Facebook page. We will also hear from one more teacher a bit later in tonight's program. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Teachers weren't the only public sector employees who expressed their frustrations with management this past week. Members of both SEIU Local 73 and National Nurses United, NNU, who are working in the Cook County Hospital System, carried out one-day strikes this past week. The nurses on Thursday and SEIU 73 members on Friday. The reason for holding the strike separately is not entirely clear to me, and some I talked to question that decision. But any hospital strike of any length of time sends a strong message. Both unions are fed up with negotiations over a contract that expired in November and that show little progress. I visited with members of NNU on the picket line on Thursday. Shelly is a nurse at Stroger Hospital. The nurses were manning the picket lines despite a steady rain, which you can hear clearly in this interview. My name is Shelly. I work in trauma department here at Cook County or Stroger Hospital. And why are you guys out here today? Well, we just want to make it hurt, you know, like we don't, we want safe staffing. Most importantly, we want to, you know, take care of our patients as properly as we can. We don't want them to raise our insurance. You know, we, we work through the pandemic. We want respect and maybe they'll hear us now. It's most of our contract's been up since November. We've been trying to deal with this, the staffing issue since then. They don't want to really work with us. They just want to keep telling us no and we're, we're not taking no as an answer. So the actual contract expired in November, so it's been it's well over six months, I guess, that you guys have been without a, uh, a new contract? Uh, well, you know, they've been keep going in to have meetings to talk about the contract, renewing it, and nobody seems to want to bend either way. We're not going to bend. They don't want to bend, so this is what we have to do. So you mentioned the safety issues, you know, is obviously important. Staffing issues is one of the big issues for nurses always. Um, are there any other issues that uh, are, are really important in the contract uh, uh, negotiations right now? Our biggest ones are just, we don't want our insurance to go up and get the staffing that we need, appropriate staffing. They try putting, you know, uh, agency nurses in areas that they didn't belong for a while and that caused bigger problems. So you guys have done several one day strikes now uh, over the course of the last year or so. Um, how do you feel the one day strikes have helped with uh, the contract uh, fight? Have they actually put pressure in negotiations on uh, the management to, to move, or how do you th- what do you think about, about that? I definitely think it makes a difference. Uh, they, they can sit there and tell us that, you know, no, 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 but when you see your nurses are out here and we're going to keep fighting for the same thing, eventually they're going to have to do something about it. When you do do a one-day strike like this, um, I, I'm guessing that there's uh, hospital operations do still continue. Um, how many of the, are, is, is it the full uh, uh, group of the nurses at the hospital that are out on a one-day strike like this, or how does that work? Yeah, so it goes out to everyone. We got med surge out here, ER, trauma, L&D. Uh, earlier, there was more nurses. Um, you know, little rain doesn't bother us, so we're out here still going. So it does definitely put pressure on the hospital. It's not nor- a, day, a normal day here right now. Definitely not a normal day. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you. 
National Nurses United, NNU member and activist Dennis Kosuth has been a regular guest here on Labor Express to discuss issues regarding the nurses. As you would expect, Dennis was out on the picket line talking to his fellow nurses about their frustrations over staffing ratios and management's push for health benefit cuts in the new contract. Health benefit cuts for hospital workers, particularly ones who worked during the pandemic. It's unbelievable what is being uh, proposed here. I asked Dennis about the nurses' decision to organize the one-day strike. I mistakenly said there had been a couple of these over the past year in my interview with Shelly that you heard previously. Uh, the previous one-day strikes were by SEIU Local 73. The nurses have not struck actually in decades. This is the first strike in many decades. I was particularly interested in why a one-day strike and if that was going to be enough. So right now today is the NNU's um, one-day strike, and I, I, I actually made a, a wrong statement earlier when I talked about this being, you know, several one-day strikes. You guys actually, this is the first one-day strike exactly. you guys have done. But 73 is doing a one-day strike tomorrow, and they've done a, done a couple of these. So there's several unions involved here, right? That's right, yeah. Now, this is the first time nurses at county have been on strike since 1976. I was born in 1976, and I'm an old man, so uh, that was a long time ago. And that was on the heels of a doctor's strike. Uh, a couple years beforehand where doctors were fighting and striking over patient care, over, over public health, about the need to have uh, public uh, health care for those who aren't insured, those who don't have citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. And so the nurses were inspired by that, and, and that's the last time we went on strike. So it's been uh, 40, almost 40, uh, 45 years. So this is a one-day strike. Um, SEIU 73 did do a one-day strike back in December of 2020 uh, over their contract. We've are also in contract negotiations. Our contract expired this past um, uh, fall. And one of the big things we're fighting around is just staffing. Uh, we can't, we don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough staff. Um, I myself uh, worked at Provident and was laid off from that job. They closed my job down due to budget cuts. Um, and it's just outstanding to me that you have money, hand over fist, being handed to this system, and they're saying they can't staff uh, nurses, they can't staff healthcare workers. When we need it most. I mean, healthcare we know is a huge thing, especially with COVID. We need more uh, healthcare right now, not less. And the county is elected to cut services. They've shut down two clinics on the south side of Chicago. They've reduced ER services. They shut down the ICU. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense when they have the money handed over from the federal government. So that's what we're fighting for is more, better staffing, more nurses, more services for our patients. You mentioned uh, the cutbacks in the county system. You also made reference there to like the closing of Mercy and so on. Yeah. Um, are you guys seeing the impact of that? Now, last time I think I talked to you was when those things were just starting to, to you know, uh, were announced and they were gonna be happening, but now that they've started to actually go into place, are you starting to see the effect? I mean, the thing at Provident is that we don't take ambulances and Mercy is um, a huge ER and, and they don't, they're not gonna have the service they used to. So that's an, it's an excellent question. Like, where are these people going? Where are they getting healthcare? And none of this stuff is tracked, and that's the problem with it. When you look at the gaps in healthcare that exists in this city, this is the third largest city in the world, but we're number one. This city's number one when it comes to a life expectancy gap. In Streeterville, you know, the Mag Mile area, the average life expectancy is 90. Just eight miles south, you could walk there from, from Streeterville to Englewood, the average life expectancy is 60. So this is before COVID. There's a 30-year gap in how long someone will live just based on where they were born. It's got nothing to do with your, with anything else other than that. And it's and that's a shame that existed before COVID. We know that COVID has also uh, been disproportionately affecting African-Americans, Latino, Latina people. And so there's a need for healthcare. There's no question that we, these, these, these things should have been a three alarm, fire alarm uh, years ago. 
And so who knows where these people are getting health care from? And no one's paying attention to it because it's poor people who don't have resources, who aren't connected politically, who don't have access to the kind of services they need. And my guess is that a lot of them are just doing it the best they can. And to me, that's a real shame. Just to clarify, too, for people that might not be aware of how the hospital, you know, the employees are broken up into the union. So NNU, Nurses, National Nurses United, represents the nurses here right. in the Cook County system. 73 represents who? 73 represents a lot of different workers. Some of them are environmental workers. Some of them are ER techs, um, ward clerks, uh, cafeteria workers. There's uh, probably over 1,000, maybe 11, 1,200 SEIU 73 members. NNU, we probably got about... Uh, 1,100 or so members across the entire Cook County system. Uh, Ask me, local 1111, I heard, uh, may have come to an agreement, or maybe a tentative agreement um, uh, was was announced uh, through some uh, channels. So, and they represent also a number of employees in Cook County Health and Hospital System. So, that's the thing that's interesting about counties that there's so many different unions. Like, there's 40 different contracts in total between workers and the Cook County Health System the Cook County in general, uh, the Cook County as an employer, and a lot of the ways they do it is they'll find one union, make an agreement with them on economics, and basically say, here's the pattern. Everyone else is going to get the same thing uh, come hell or high water. And so this is important that this strike is happening because it's kind of bucking that trend where it doesn't matter that one union settled. The rest of us, we're still fighting. We're still going to keep organizing for what's right for our patients. So do you see that, um, you know, that, that many contracts in the one uh, facility being a real problem, um, you know, for, for workers? Well, it's definitely a challenge because you have different unions with different leaderships, with different structures, with different approaches to bargaining. Um, in an ideal world, if there was one employer, there should be one union that represents all the workers. But we don't live in that ideal world, so it's certainly a complicated process, unfortunately. It's almost a little bit like the old craft union model, you know, before 100%. the industrial unions existed, yeah. where you know, one workplace would be broken up into all these different represent, you know, units. Yeah. But obviously, I agree, it's, a, it's just a challenge to have nurses and, right. you know, orderlies and all these different people, you know, in the same right. unit. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's even different in different systems. Like at Provident, where I worked, 7, uh, 743, the Teamsters, represent the vast majority of workers there. And there's maybe a few dozen that are represented by, by the nurses and there's a few SEIU members. But that's just because the historical hospital had a contract with them, so it's kind of carried over. But it hasn't really, I feel, done us any favors in the sense there's a history at county of unions fighting with each other rather than fighting alongside each other. Um, when I first started in county back in 08, there was a huge battle between California Nurses Association and SEIU, and that bled into this system here where they were every day buying lunch to try and desert the other union. And to me, it, it made zero sense to have these unions battling out, spending tens of thousands of dollars, beating each other up, while Todd Stroger uh, Jr. was sitting back and laughing at us the whole time, I'm sure. One real quick other uh, question, too, I have about the one-day strike. So you, you mentioned this is the first time the nurses are doing it. Um, SEI's done it, done it a couple times now. Um, obviously, there's a real limitation when you're working in a hospital environment of, you know, uh, of striking because you're putting, you know, you don't want to put lives at risk and that kind of thing. Do you think the one days are effective though in putting pressure at the negotiating table? Obviously that's a very limited thing compared yeah. to like, uh, you know, when the teachers go out for weeks or something like that. There's definitely positives and minuses to it. I mean, one thing that I think makes nurses unions hesitant to strike is because when they go out indefinitely, they end up being very long strikes. In, in, in Massachusetts right now, in St. Vincent's, these nurses are going on being on strike for a month. Uh, and then you struck a place in an open-ended strike in Minneapolis. They were on strike for a very long time, again, three, four weeks, if not longer. And they didn't really get much out of it. So I think for, for nurses, if you're going to go on strike, 
indefinitely, you have to really take that proposition seriously and figure out how to build that solidarity up, how to keep the line strong, how to not have people going to work, how to, you know, prevent that um, operation uh, from continuing in a way that, that's where they, where they refuse to negotiate with you. And so uh, the one days, I think, are preferable because it's just one and done. You, you, you knock it out, you tell them, and it's expensive. The hospital has to spend a lot of money on agency is disrupted to their operations. And so you, you have the benefit of disrupting services, but you also have the advantage of not being out there for who knows how long. Well, thank you so much, Dennis. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I should point out that Mercy Hospital has not totally closed. After a huge community fight back, the hospital has been taken over by new owners and renamed Insight Chicago. And the new owners promise to restore much needed emergency and other services for Chicago's near south side. There is much more to this story we don't have time for on tonight's program. We'll hear a little bit more about this from SEIU later in the program when we hear from some SEIU nurses on a separate topic. And I hope to be able to go into more detail on a future episode. But for now, to be clear, the hospital is not closing at this point and it is expected to return to full service. We're going to take a station ID break, and when we return, we'll hear from one more of the people who joined the nurses on their picket line, and then we'll hear from transit workers also frustrated with contract negotiations, and SEIU celebrates Juneteenth, so stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. As I mentioned earlier, we would hear from a CTU member once more in tonight's program, this time from a teacher who showed up at the nurses' picket line outside Stroger Hospital to show her solidarity with the nurses. There were several other CTU members who did likewise. Katie Osgood, I'm a special education teacher in the Chicago Public Schools and a member of CTU. And you're out here at the picket line with the nurses. Why do you feel it's important that you're out here? Yeah, I mean, showing labor solidarity is one of the most important things that we can do. Um, across our city. You know, the nurses were there for us as teachers and staff when we were on strike. Um, and this strike is a really important strike that really connects to the same stuff that's going on in our unions and our schools. I mean, they're, they're out here talking about safe staffing levels. That's the same thing we're talking about small class sizes. Um, it's the bosses profiting off of, you know, having terrible working conditions and terrible conditions for patients or students. It's the same issue. Um, also things like wages and benefits. I mean, nurses were our heroes during this pandemic for the past year and a half, and here they are saying that they can't possibly afford to, you know, pay them fairly, to give them fair benefits, just really basic things. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of crossover, a lot of connection, and um, their win is our win. So, yes, I know a lot of other CTU folks have been rolling through, um, and other unions as well, because this is an important fight. Um, now, you guys are due to go back uh, into the classroom uh, full-time in the fall. You talked about the you know, concerns about safety. Is that still a concern for the teachers as well as yeah. is the safety in the school? Yes, absolutely. Um, if we hadn't done the fight initially when they were trying to reopen schools, I mean, our employers would have sent us back with, like, a cloth face mask and, and some wipes. That would have been the extent of the, you know, protocols put in place. So our fight did matter. We got more put in place. Right now, though, the issue is, is that um, we don't know what the fall is going to look like. We don't know what's happening with these variants. We don't know what the state of the pandemic is. Um, and especially when it comes to schools that are full of 12 and under children um, who are not going to be vaccinated by that time. So I think um, just being really aware of what the situation is and being ready to react and um, protect our students and their families if things take a turn for the worse. Yeah. 
what has the challenge been like when you have, you know, there's already been people back in the schools and then you are still doing online uh, classes for oh, some yeah. students too. I assume that might persist even into the next year. I can't imagine the challenges that that uh, must present. Yeah, um, it's called simultaneous teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't work. Simultaneous teaching does not work any way, shape or form. Um, as far as I know, the plan for next year is to not do any of any of that where we have kids at the same time online as we do in front of us it's just not a, it's not a model that can work um, especially with children so um, yeah our district is talking about having a virtual academy um, for medically fragile kids with um, medical conditions that don't allow them to come back but we want to make sure that that is available to anyone who is still concerned about anything related to the pandemic and sickness and not just a very narrow definition. So um, they are putting that in place and we'll see how it goes. Of course, the really bad news that uh, came out of the schools just this past week was this talk of layoffs yes. uh, in the schools. Um, can you talk a little bit about that news? Yeah, uh, so 443 people were laid off from um, our schools. And honestly, it was a slap in the face to all of us that have been fighting and working and, and doing all this hard work for the past year and a half to lose members of our school communities um, at this juncture where we need we need the folks that have relationship with our students to stay put. The worst of it is is that there's nearly two billion dollars sitting in a in a you know in a bucket of money from the COVID relief funds and our district is not prioritizing staffing whatsoever. They are um, rationalizing these layoffs saying what well, happens every year as if this year was the same as every year. We're in a pandemic. We are coming through mass trauma. Um, we need stability in our schools and they had money right now that they could be giving to schools to stop those layoffs immediately. They are choosing not to. Um, instead, they're talking about things like new curriculum and data systems and things that nobody wants or is asking for. So it's, it's about priorities and as usual, the boss's priorities are not about human beings, communities, um, you know. So we continue to fight on that. It does seem unusual to me that in a year where you're transitioning back into the classroom and, and, and they're talking about how to you know, yeah. still carry out some amount of social distancing and yeah. all those things, yeah. that they would do cutbacks at a time yeah. like that. So our district likes to hide behind um, principal autonomy, that a lot of the cuts have to do with principals shifting things around within their own schools. So uh, the head of HR, Matt Lyons, just kind of poo-poos the whole thing, saying it's not our problem, it's just the... And, and of course, the, the, the ultimate issue is there's not enough money given to the schools. That's why cuts happen. But they like to, like, put it under layers of complicated budgets and, you know, make it seem like it's not as bad it is, as it is. It's bad. It's inappropriate. We're talking about losing people who run bilingual programs. We're talking about people who run restorative justice programs in schools. We're talking about losing the arts, music, drama teachers, arts teachers. I mean, um, I can't think of anything more important right now than keeping those folks intact so that our kids go back to school next year with those kind of programs intact. Like, the kids know when people are miss are gone and, and have, have left. So it's, it's a big deal. Um, and it's just really frustrating that we have to fight for all these things when there's money available today right now they could stop it they're choosing not to well thank you so much for taking out time to talk to me i appreciate yeah, it thank you you're listening to labor express radio news for people by working people 
It has been roughly a year and a half now that transit workers in Chicago, both bus and rail, have been working without a contract. It feels even longer, given that the odd way that transit union contracts have been delayed almost always in recent years, so that they're often working kind of retroactively. This explains why several transit workers you will hear from later on say that it's been three years since the last contract. The last contract was delayed by a similar length of time as the current one. Eric Brasier, who has been a regular guest here on Labor Express to talk about issues with working for the CTA, the Chicago Transit Authority, was rallying yet again this Friday at the Howard CTA Terminal. This is a third of what the transit workers call Hour of Power rallies, organized by Basir's organization, the Justice Coalition. A couple others were organized previously by Transit Workers United. Both groups bring together CTA employees from both the Bus Operators Union, ATU Local 241, and the Rail Workers, ATU Local 308, who are frustrated their union's leadership are not organizing a more militant fight to win a good, not-concessionary contract. A high-profile incident a couple weeks ago in which a rider refused to wear a mask and shot at a bus driver has also highlighted the nearly daily verbal and far too often physical assaults on CTA employees, which has seemingly increased during the pandemic. The primary objective is to hold our union leadership accountable and to empower and inspire the union members to take responsibility for the union and to take control of the union and make it a truly democratic, revolutionary, militant force. <laughs> and that's not what's happening now, right? Absolutely not. Uh, everything I just told you is in contravention to business unionism, which has been the way at the ATU in Chicago uh, for decades. What are some of the examples of what you'd like to see the ATU leadership doing uh, instead of what they're doing now? We have been pushing and trying to pass motions to get our leadership to do what we're doing and more. But they are very resistant um, and it's frustrating. What is the state now of the contact situation uh, with the two uh, uh, unions in the transit right now? It is in a state of ignorance, gross darkness. The members have no idea what is going on. For 513 days, we have been without a contract. 513 days. That's throughout the pandemic. We have no information. We don't know what the hell they're negotiating. In fact, as we speak right now, Union President uh, Eric Dixon and Keith Hill are supposed to be uh, in negotiations with the CTA about what we don't know. It's a mystery. What, what are the, the big issues that uh, you feel that the, they should be looking at primarily in the contract? What are the things that they need to be rectified? Oh, absolutely. The, the biggest issue is the part-time jobs. We have part-time employees who have been serving this city with dedication and loyalty for eight years. No dental, no pension. If they get sick, there's, they have no chance of any kind of uh, pay if they get sick. Nothing. They, but they certainly get punished for it. Part-time jobs are keeping people in the city of Chicago in poverty. These part-timers are working, in addition to doubling and doing extra overtime at the CTA, they are doing rideshare. They are doing their own little things on the side, which is fine. 
But they're not doing it because it's fun. They're doing it because they need to pay the bills. When I grew up, the CTA, working at the CTA, was something to look up to. Now, it's something that, oh my God, I can't believe it. These people live like this? That's the most, there's many other issues too, and lots of coworkers are bringing up all kinds of things. That's just the biggest thing in my mind. I know one big concern of late, too, has been all the attacks, uh, violent attacks, uh, really, on CTA employees. Is that something that you're concerned about as well? Absolutely. And we have uh, unsuccessfully tried to pass motions at Local 308 for our union leadership to hold press conferences, do pickets and protests, take public action, organize the members for our safety. Every night, someone's being shot at, hit. Uh, threatened with rape and assault. We have so many women who work on the midnights. They're threatened with rape every day. I mean, what does that do to the mental health of a human being? What would be, uh, you think, some good solutions to improving the situation in terms of safety for the CTA employees? At the Justice Coalition, we're, we're pushing, pushing two-person crews. Two-person crews. It's the peace sign. The deuces. And what that means is the more full-time uniformed employees, the more full-time uniformed employees that riders see, the safer the employees will be and the safer the passengers will be. Because when people who are maybe up to no good see there's more than one employee, they tend to go elsewhere to cause trouble. So this is one very important thing. We, we definitely need security. Uh, some say more police. That's a slippery slope because what happens is when the police come, they arrest people, they put them in jail, they have a record, but then the police are gone for the rest of the night because they got paperwork. They got all kinds of stuff they got to deal with. So then they're gone. So as long as you have uniformed employees, full-time union scale jobs, we have a chance for the people of the city of Chicago to be safer and for the employees to be healthier. There were about a dozen CTA employees at the rally, joined by a handful of supporters. Several of the transit workers were part-timers, including these three rail workers, members of ATU Local 308. My name is Willette Lucas. Sharon Franklin. Janice Brown. And you guys are all part-time employees at CTA, and one of the big uh, concerns here, people at this rally, is the number of part-time jobs. I've been hearing as many as 25% of the employees in CTA now are part-time. Um, what are the problems that you have as a, uh, a part-time employee that you'd like to rectify? Equal pay. We, we, we do the same work as the CSRs, but we get half the pay. We don't have vacation days, sick days, none of that. We have no benefits whatsoever. So we just want to be equal. Well, to add on that, we uh, when we take off, we don't get paid for it, and then we have to, uh, you know, work double time just to pay our bills, you know, which is so hard. Some of us have kids at home, you know, we have to leave our kids working 16 hours a day, you know. So, and then half the time when we work overtime, we don't get paid. We got out, you know, uh, time missing out of our check. We have to go back and and you know take care of that. That's ridiculous. And a lot of you guys have been doing this for a long time, right? You've been here eight years? Eight years. I've been here eight years and counting. As of June 10th, I had eight years. 
haven't had a contract since 2018. 2018 contract ended December 2018 and we worked this pandemic and haven't gotten any hazard pay nothing nothing and they don't even discuss the contract with us we don't know anything we don't even know what they asked for you know asked for I know one of the things that the CTA in the past has uh tried to explain their their use of part-timers is to say that these are jobs that are uh like economic development for youth, that they're getting uh, people that are out of the workforce into the workforce by offering these part-time jobs. Uh, obviously, that's a different situation for you guys. You guys have been doing this for, like I said, eight years. So it's not that's not what's going on here. Exactly. Correct. I'm 60. Okay. I'm 60, to be honest. Eight years ago, I was 52. So, yeah. And we came in under the wrong assumption. We were told that according to your experience, 57. you would move, okay? I came in, I got plenty customer service experience. Say so they said between $12.40 and $17. I quit my job. I worked for United as a customer service rep, and I also was a supervisor at the airport for AirServe. So I quit those because once you become CTA, CTA owns you. They give you all different shifts so you cannot have another job. So me knowing I was gonna get $17 and some change, I had no problem. I've been directory assistants. I've been customer service every place, I've been retail, I've been postal service, I've did a lot. And they have no respect or no regard for your experience. We put in for different positions, they get people from the outside. It's sad. The union does not fight for its members. They're in the bed with CTA. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. The last couple of weeks were not all, or I should say only, about the uphill battles faced by public sector workers in Chicago. On June 17th, President Biden signed into law Juneteenth as a federal holiday. June 19th has long been celebrated as a holiday by African-American communities across the country, but especially in Texas, where it originates. The holiday is based on June 19, 1865, when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, to take control of that state and ensure that all enslaved people be freed. This was a full two and a half years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation and is recognized as the day in which the news of the proclamation reached the last remaining significant enslaved population of the Confederacy. Many regard the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress's support for the holiday as an attempt to distract from the outright assault underway on voting rights of people of color and the continued inaction around police violence targeting people of color. But despite this, most consider it a long overdue development that deserves celebration. SEIU Service Employees International Union organized several events, including a car care event in Chicago to celebrate. They also televised the event via Facebook and YouTube for those who could not attend. The vice president of SEIU's healthcare division kicked off the events outside of Insight Chicago, formerly Mercy Hospital, where SEIU was a major part of the community fight back that helped save the hospital, as discussed earlier in tonight's program. She placed the holiday in its proper context. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. My name is Erica Blanduro-Simi. I am Executive Vice President of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas. And, <laughs> and we are so excited to be here today celebrating Juneteenth. Uh, we're here today to celebrate Chicago and this nation's first official recognition of Juneteenth as a holiday. This... <laughs> This is a significant day. 
It marks the date that enslaved Black people in Texas were actually freed more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. As a nation and in our state, we are still grappling with the legacy of slavery and systematic racism. Formally commemorating Juneteenth is just a baby step. But it's clear that we still have a long way to go in our fight for racial and economic justice. So today, to honor Juneteenth and the fight for justice, workers, and especially but not exclusively black and brown workers are coming together and joining with community leaders to call for the concrete steps still desperately needed to address the systematic racism that infects our workplaces, our communities, our city, and our nation. Black and brown communities are still having to fight just to have access to life-saving, affordable, and accessible healthcare. Let me hear you say, that ain't, right. that ain't right. We stand today in front of Mercy Hospital, now labeled Insight, which has come very close to closing down despite the crucial role it plays providing care to underserved communities of color. It took a coalition of black and brown communities and caregivers and allies in order to keep these doors open and the fight is not over. Black and brown workers are still having to fight to win respect, dignity, and the compensation that they deserve. As this pandemic has made all too clear, too many essential workers and especially too many essential workers of color continue to put their lives on the line every day for poverty wages. We're here to honor and celebrate Freedom Day by calling for living wages, a voice on the job, and a right to organize for workers that deserve. And to say loud and clear that freedom is a union. Freedom is a union because a union provides workers with the voice and power they need to fight for a living wage so that they are not juggling two and three jobs in an attempt to survive and never be able to call any of their time their own. Freedom is a union because a union gives workers the power to fight for protections on the job from COVID and the many other threats that come with low wage work. Freedom is a union because unions provide workers with a voice to win sufficient paid time off, not just so that they can stay home when they're sick, to protect their families and for those who work with and often those who provide care for, but also so that they can have free time to spend with their families. And freedom isn't just a union. It's the right to organize on the job, the right to form a union and to work with one's coworkers and one's community to build power across workplaces, across a neighborhood, a city, and a nation. It's the power to transform industries, the power to transform jobs and working standards for all low-wage workers, and especially brown and black workers who are still fighting for freedom. So what we know is that essential workers have been the workers that have kept this economy going. Essential workers are the workers that have kept companies going, hospitals going, and we have to not only call them essential but treat them as such. We are essential, not sacrificial. And that means that we deserve to be free. Our communities deserve the same resources as others. There should be no 30 year deference 
in terms of life expectancy between Streeterville and Inglewood. And until those types of things are addressed, until our schools are the same, until our jobs are the same, until we are compensated the same way and allowed the same freedoms to organize and have a voice about the profits that we help these companies make, we are not free. So we celebrate today, we strategize as Representative Buckner stated, and we organize to move forward. Thank you for coming. Several SEIU nurses spoke during the celebration launch. We will now hear from some hospital workers who have been a part of this struggle. We're going to hear from Crystal Booker, a dietary worker at Mount Sinai, and she will be followed by Joel Novak, who is an RN at Mount Sinai. Crystal. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Crystal. So for me, freedom means, as a hospital worker, livable wages. Although we just won a contract a few years ago at Mount Sinai, it still wasn't enough. Yeah, I was able to buy a car and do a little something. But when the COVID hit, I had a daughter that's a teacher, couldn't pay her bills. So for me to have to work double shifts, to go home and try to create an income for myself, just to make sure my child has a roof over her head and food in her stomach is not enough. We demand respect and dignity from our employers. We shouldn't be short staffed. I shouldn't have to work three and four positions in one day just because you're too cheap to bring somebody else in. You wanna save your money so you can get a bonus. What about us? Come on now, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, let's talk about it. I'm tired, I'm fed up. I'm working, off three, I'm working off six hours of sleep in the last two days because I've been busting my behind to make Father's Day cards just to make sure my rent is paid and my bills are paid and my car keeps gas and I can keep it running. So with that being said, let's stay together because tonight, united we stand. Amen. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Joel Novak. I work with Crystal at Mount Sinai Hospital. I'm a registered nurse. Um, just want to say happy Juneteenth to everybody. And I'm just thinking as far as what freedom represents to me, I think um, we, we heard a lot of talk in the last year, just about how essential our work is, but obviously the kind of treatment and the conditions that we work under or anything but, um, there's a lot of disrespect. Even if, you know, people are smiling to your face, you know, the type of short staffing that we go through, uh, materials breaking down, our, you know, our patients being put in unsafe situations, us being put in unsafe situations. I drove here with another coworker who actually got injured as a result of um, just unsafe staffing practices. So yeah, we're here. Um, united to address these very um, dangerous things, these, these very real things. And um, just moving forward, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic of the year. It's been a tough one, um, but optimistic moving forward because I think we're on the upswing and we're going to make some big changes as a result of organizing with our, with our working class sisters and brothers. So once again, happy Juneteenth, happy to be here. All power to the workers. That is all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 51 c 3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers and not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio and Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. 
The song is our theme is called Worker Songs by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpinradio.com for more Labor Express. Thank you. 